Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written almost three dozen cookbooks, including the Great Big Pressure Cooker Cookbook, the only book written for both stovetop and electric pressure cookers. Every single recipe is written for both kinds with all the adjustments necessary, as well as the Great American Slow Cooker Book with, I don't know, what did that have, 5 million recipes in it? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> 500 recipes, I think, the Great American Slow Cooker book. And you know what? Even though it's in the 1st of August here, fall is coming, and it's time to up your slow cooker game. So oh, check I can't believe that you're out. bringing that up already. It's true. Winter cometh. Oy. Oy. But anyway, on this podcast, we want to talk to you about our culinary journeys. How did we get to the place where we wrote 36 cookbooks? Not exactly the publishing journey, but our food journey before we ever started publishing. We're going to have an interview with a great author of cake books talk about what's making us happy in food this week give our one minute cooking tip all of that up ahead i grew up in a house where my mother worked full-time and hated to cook <laughs> which was a she'd be thing. horrified to hear this because now she likes to cook yeah, oh she's Trust me, she. I think she owns her past. Okay. Um, but what she's not going to own is not only did she hate it, it's a good thing she hated it because she was a terrible cook. And I don't <laughs> know that she thinks she was a terrible cook, but she was a terrible cook. And I'm only she, laughing because my mother was a terrible cook too. And she didn't want to do it. And so I started cooking a lot. By the time I was in junior high school, I had just started buying cookbooks and I just wanted to cook. I would always doctor up her stuff. She'd go into the bathroom and I'd throw some allspice in her pot roast because, I don't know, it just looked like, first of all, I don't know what we were doing with allspice in the house. And it was probably so old yeah, that it didn't do anything. Yeah. But all right, I threw it in anyway. And then I had to even tell my grandmother about allspice because quite honestly, it was a family trait. No, no one in my family, none of the women in my family knew how to cook. Not my grandmothers, not my mother. Yeah, I don't know if this is a typical food journey story. I mean, a lot of people learn to cook in their adult life because they grew up in a house where there wasn't much cooking. That's a common story. I don't know if it's a common cookbook, make a career out of a story, because mine is the same. My mother wasn't, I say she was a terrible cook. She was a mid-century modern cook. If it came in a can, she made it, which meant I grew up eating canned chicken and dumplings. I grew up. <laughs> Gross. I grew up eating canned soup. I grew you up grew eating up canned pears and cream cheese, and she called that a salad. Yeah, canned pears and cream cheese on a slice of lettuce was <laughs> salad for dinner. We, If it came out of a can, my mom made it, and you know she would undo the can of green beans or peas, for example, and she would boil them for 40 minutes on the stove so that they were pablum. She was the typical mid-century cook she made a lot of things my mother still makes a lot of things she's still alive she's almost 90 and she makes a lot of things with canned chicken bruce didn't even know that canned <laughs> chicken and canned potatoes were a thing until i came into our relationship sure enough they are a thing but anyway my mother was not a very great cook my mother's mother yeah, yeah. was a very great cook. You had some good inspiration, at least. You had someone showing you what good food was made at home. We had good food because we went out a lot and we brought in. There was a local Italian restaurant where I grew up in Bayside called Maria's Trattoria. Maria's Bayside, for those in, who don't know. In Queens, New York. It's one of the boroughs of New York, Queens, and Bayside's at the far end, way past the subway. <laughs> and you have to take a bus to the subway. And there was an Italian restaurant. There's Maria's, a lot of bitterness right there. Maria's, oh, I couldn't 
wait to get out of there. And Maria's Trattoria is where I first had fettuccine Alfredo. So what we did a lot, because my mother did work full time and didn't like to cook, is we ordered in. So even in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of Italian food coming in, Chinese coming in, pizza, and occasionally even, yes, White Castle. Yeah. And my in my case, we always did the same thing when I was a kid for most summers. That is, as a good Texas family, we went to Colorado. We always went to Uray or Estes Park or usually both a week at one and a week at the other. And then afterwards, they would come back through Oklahoma and drop me at my grandparents' house. And I spent most of my summers with my maternal grandparents. And my maternal grandmother was an exceptional cook and she used no recipes whatsoever and more than even an exceptional cook she was an exceptional baker and she actually baked professionally she was a baker as a profession and her her cooking was just astounding i still i, I still talk to bruce about on sundays after these were german methodists uh, on sundays after going to the german methodist church we would come home and my grandmother and her sisters would fry chicken until like two or three in the afternoon mm. and then we would all sit down at this giant table with this giant groaning platter of fried chicken well it seemed to me groaning and giant when i was a kid and the you know there would be mashed potatoes and there would be everything that you could possibly imagine in fact my job as a kid was to take care of the potato patch on this farm oh boy did we have different jobs provided the family the potatoes <laughs> it was really different but that but then i left there every summer and i took the greyhound bus back to dallas <laughs> yes in fact i took can you imagine putting a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old on a greyhound bus today but i did no. i got no. on a greyhound bus by myself i went back to Dallas and back to canned green beans and canned chicken. <laughs> but isn't it amazing that your mom came out of that house and mm. didn't pick up any of that? It's like none of it stuck. None of no. it inspired her no. to want to do it. And my mother was not um, uh, uh, my mother was not a professional. She didn't work. Right. She was a full-time homemaker. And now I will say that my mother does and still does make a mean pie. And my mother can make a really great pie crust. And I think that's the debt of her own mother because she just uses exactly the same recipe her mother did. And I think that my mom can still, I mean, I know she can. She can still make a darn good lemon meringue pie. But in terms of savory stuff, ooh. Um, well, there's a lot of canned chicken involved, <laughs> a lot of canned chicken and canned croissant rolls. Oh, and, nice. And it all gets bound up together and baked. And please don't and even ask questions. I don't blame my mother for not being a good cook because she had no inspiration. I mean, my grandmother. Oh, what is the myth that Jewish grandmothers have to be good cooks? I don't. <laughs> I really never, ever understood that. I had two Jewish grandmothers that were both alive into my 30s, and neither of them could cook to save their your, lives. Your aunt will so disagree with this. She believes that her mother was a very good baker, and I'm not going to get into that discussion right now, <laughs> but she was not a good cook, and mm. neither was my mm. mother's mother. Mm. They were not good cooks. Mm. I remember once I was maybe about 10 or 11, I was starting to want to know how to cook, and she was making a meatloaf, and she was making pot roast, and she was making all this meat, and I said to her, well, how do you know when it's done? And her answer is, when there's no more juice. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I wanted to say that I've heard the story quite a bit from Bruce. And I want to tell you that, that there was no more juice goes for fish fillets, oh, too. Oh, yeah. You, you put a fish fillet oh. in the oven. See, the thing about food, protein especially, you cook it till it's brown and crunchy. Oh. The, so 
a chicken breast so it's brown and crunchy mm. i'm gonna veal chop till it's brown and crunchy mm. a soul filet till it's brown and crunchy <laughs> So, so it is amazing that I picked up anything, but I picked it up on my own because I so wanted to do it. So by the time I got through high school, I told my parents I wanted to go to chef school. And my grandmother, who liked the brown and crunchy everything, like no good Jewish boy becomes a chef, so you're not doing that. But she had no say in it, so I did. I went to chef school. Did I like it? No, it was a little too military for me. So I went to art school. I got a degree in fine arts. And long story short, I got a job as an advertising copywriter. And where was my office? Right next to the test kitchen in the ad agency. Now, this is the early 80s when test kitchens were still a place where there were home economists in there. <laughs> and ad agency, it's so madman, an ad agency <laughs> with home economists on staff. And they were creating recipes with the with the agency's clients' products all day. So we had mm. Nabisco and Duncan Hines. So they were coming up with ways to use the cake mixes. And <laughs> I spent most of my time in the test kitchen chatting with the home economists and knowing I had the wrong job, knowing that I should be in here doing this stuff and not out there writing the copy that goes with the cake they created. And my story is quite different. We're going to get past the Cortez Kitchen in a minute, but my story is quite different. I came out of this mid-century modern home. I then decided I loved cooking and I wanted to cook better. So I kind of took myself on a, I don't know, personal journey of cooking. And the way I did is I subscribed to Bon Appetit magazine. This is not a lie. I subscribed to Bon Appetit, and every month I basically cooked through Bon Appetit. Back in the days of Brooke Dodgeny, back in the days of all these old school people at Barbara Fairchild, all these people at Bon Appetit, I used it as a cooking tool, and I taught myself how to cook while I was in grad school, while I was getting my PhD in lit, all that stuff, and I decided that I loved cooking. So when I got my first academic appointment in Austin, Texas at St. Edward University, I discovered this horrible thing that we didn't have summer employment because St. Edward University was the training camp of the Dallas Cowboys, the summer training camp back in the day. And we didn't offer summer employment. So I didn't get a paycheck in the summer. And I but didn't you can go watch the Cowboys work out. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I was going to make money and how I was going to pay for anything. And so I basically just talked my way in to writing the food content to an internet startup called America Online. And this is the days, I'm telling you, this is the you early, could, early 90s when people thought online was garbage. They thought it was nothing. They didn't think it would amount to anything. And so I was willing and that counted. And somehow <laughs> I honestly wrote most of the original food content on the original AOL back when there were chat rooms and Star Trek chat rooms and men for men and men for women chat rooms and all that kind of stuff. Back in that day, I wrote a lot of the curated food content because I just literally talked my way into the job. Well, a lot of that talking your way in, being in the right place at the right time, it was early enough mm. in the online world. Mm -hmm. And even it was still so deep in the pre-digital world yep. that we were both able to accomplish what I don't know that we'd be able to do today. So, you know, I was doing this work in a test kitchen 
And then I met a woman with who, a full-time job with a full-time. So I had my full-time advertising job and I'm working part-time in a test kitchen. I'm taking all these vacation days to do it. And I meet a woman who I become very good friends with Jody and she was writing a cookbook and her full-time job was in the test kitchen. And we were out to lunch one day and ran into her editor and it was just one of those things. We were talking to the editor and one thing led to another and they asked me if I wanted to write a book. I'm like, what? It's like out of a movie. What? That, that doesn't happen anymore. Would you like to be a star? <laughs> <laughs> I discovered you. But they didn't even discover you. What's so silly is that this person, this big publisher, asked you basically on the street in New York if you wanted to write a book. Based on the fact that I worked in a test kitchen was the only requirement. And it was a little frozen drink book, and it did really well. And it started this whole new career. But the thing was, I didn't think it was really going to go anywhere, and I didn't no. quit my advertising job. And then no. I met Mark, and we moved in, and we're having this wonderful life together. And I had, this, and I'm still writing for AOL. And still writing for AOL. And I have this job writing for Passport Newsletter, which back in the day was this no picture newsletter that went out once a month to extremely high end clients, and it was a luxury newsletter, no pictures, no, pictures. no pi- a true like eight page newsletter that came in the mail. I'm not joking. And I had this job writing basically the column of the restaurants in New. York. And so I was writing about New York restaurants for this newsletter, also writing for AOL. It was kind of crazy. And then this strange confluence of events happened all in one week. I was offered an amazing new job in an ad agency to be head of the creative department and broadcast production. Huge. Huge. And I accepted that job, and the very next day, my agent, my book agent, because now that I had a drink book published, I had an agent called and said, do you want to work on a new cookbook? Because I have a publisher that would like to publish the Ultimate Ice Cream book, and they'd like you to write it. So we were looking at each other, Mark and I across the room, was like, how can I write a new book when I got this brand new job? And at this time, now this person is my literary agent too, but she wasn't my literary agent. And I just said to Bruce, you, uh, we'll do it together. Yeah. I, I'll help you. That's at least how we got there. And some of it is being in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Some of it is finding a passion because of a loss or an absence of that passion in your life. Some of it is finding a way to do something creative when you're not sure how to be creative anymore. I think that... that, that that finding a passion born out of an absence in your life, I can't say how important I think that is to the creative process. And if you are in investigating your own creativity in knitting, in painting, in arts, in music, in whatever, think about how that creativity often arises from a place of loss or absence. It's really intriguing. Okay, before we get on to our next segment of the podcast, let me just say that it would be great if you were on this journey all the time with us. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, give it a rating. In fact, we're doing this unsupported. We don't have any sponsors. And if you could just drop a rating or say nice podcast or having great fun or anything like that, it would really help us in the analytics since we don't have any any corporate support to do this, it would just make our day. Okay. Up next, as is always the case, our one-minute cooking tip. Need to soften butter in a hurry? Beat it with a rolling pin. (laughs) (laughs) So this one, it just blows my mind because I watch you do it, and it's (laughs) like I don't quite understand it, but go ahead. I take a stick of butter out of the refrigerator, keep it wrapped, keep it wrapped, Take the rolling pin off the shelf 
and start beating it. Just beat it, flatten it out on, on one a, side. On a cutting board. Well, you counter. It doesn't matter. Wow. It's, so right. you just hit it. like the Don't fun- break your counters. No. Don't break your counters. So you can hit the butter and you hit it like four or five places across so you flatten it. Then you turn it over and you do it again and you turn it 90 degrees. So all four sides of it get hit. By the time you hit all four sides of it and flatten it out, the butter is softer. The friction inside from all that hitting has warmed it up a little bit. It's pliable. It's soft. And it is a super fast trick for softening butter. Well, there you go. Our one minute cooking tip. Up next, Bruce's interview with Alexandra Cropanzano, author of the new book, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. Today, I have the honor of speaking with James Beard Award winning writer Alexandra Cropanzano whose new book, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes, shares the secrets of the cakes Parisians bake at home. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So when we think of French desserts, we imagine ornate creations, Gâteau Saint-Honoré and Croque and Bouche, Tarte Tatins, but we rarely think about the homemade cakes. But that's not really the truth, isn't it? French baking... A lot of homemade cakes? You know, one of the things that made me really want to write this book was looking at my Parisian friends who who are really busy and kind of come home and want to whip up something. They think of baking in much the same way they think of fashion. Go on on the internet and you see millions of sites about how the French tie their silk scarves, for example, right? It's, a, it's almost a cliche. But the reality is, is that if you own one or two great scarves and you really know how to tie them well, and that is that French savoir fair, you know, you can dress up anything and immediately look elegant. And again, it is that kind of practical approach of having a couple things that are very good that you know how to do. I realized that was actually really true of the approach to cooking. And I, you know, it was something I had not actually examined until writing this book, but the recipes that the French make, they're recipes that are learned usually when you're a child, or certainly by the time you're in your 20s, and you have a couple back pocket recipes, and they are whether they're the absolute classics or a variation on the classics, they become part of your comfort zone, so to speak, right? They become those back pocket recipes. And once you know how to do that, popping a cake into the oven really becomes something that is infused with ease. It's just, it becomes very simple. And I will say the French really do like to end every meal with something sweet. So dessert is not an option. It is it is an absolutely essential part of dinner. And, you know, and the French are also very, very frugal. They're very practical by nature. If it's the choice between going off to a shop after work and picking up something fancy and bringing it home versus taking 10 minutes in the kitchen and whipping up a fantastic cake, they will whip up that fantastic cake with whatever is in the pantry. You know, there are a couple things also is the French... When we talk about seasonality in America, we talked about farm-to-table cooking. It's a new thing that was also obviously a very old thing because until the transportation of food, everybody did cook seasonally. And then with the advent of trucking and supermarkets um, and things being flown from other hemispheres and other countries, that went away. And now we're seeing obviously an incredible resurgence in, in local foods and farmers markets. But the French look at it even differently. And I and I think it's it's kind of a fundamental aspect of their cooking is they do they do want to celebrate whatever is in season. So that when, you know, when it's strawberry season, suddenly the city is filled with strawberry tarts and people are making strawberry cakes and they're doing strawberry mousses. And it 
it doesn't feel so much like they're simply getting a big box of things from a cooperative. It's really about, oh my goodness, this is in season. Let me bake a cake with it. And I think, you know, another another thing is they are not as into the wow factor or about novelty in cuisine. They are, you know, particularly at home, particularly en famille or with close friends, they really do like to enjoy the classics made well and with care. Um, but they really do actually take incredible pleasure in the way we take incredible pleasure in chocolate chip cookies and things like that in in their cake repertoire made well and, and with love. So in your book, you talk about how homemade French cakes, besides being simpler, also have less sugar than many of their global counterparts. And why is that? And how do these homemade creations taste so good without all that sugar? I have friends who come to visit me in New York and, and we'll go out to dinner and I will I will see as they take a knife and kind of scrape off 90% of icing on a cake in America. And um, the major thing to think about, I think, is that the reason they have less sugar is not about health consciousness. It really is about flavor. And, you know, I love sugar. Of course, I write a dessert column for the Wall Street Journal. I've just written a cake book. But what I learned growing up in France is really that when you take a bite of a, of a cake, you want to immediately have your mouth infused with whatever the flavor of the cake is. And if there's a lot of sugar, the cake will taste predominantly of sugar. And sugar will always be that first thing that you taste in an oversweetened cake or a very sweet cake. And the French have an almost similar approach in baking to the way with sugar, to the way that they cook with salt, which is that that sugar in the way that salt is meant to intensify flavor. Sugar is meant to intensify. It's meant to um, shine a spotlight on the actual essential flavors and ingredients of what you're baking. Now that could be chocolate, it might be pistachios, it could be orange zest, it could be raspberries, it could be apples. Whatever the ingredients are, I think the, the desire in France is always for that flavor to come first and to be kind of buoyed by sugar but for the sugar not to be that first thing. And so you don't miss the sugar because what you're actually getting is you're getting the incredible flavor of whatever the primary ingredient is. What I love about your book is that you not only cover sweet desserts and less sweet than most Americans are used to, but you cover savory cakes. And to a lot of US bakers, that sounds like an oxymoron. Tell us about some of your favorite savory home-baked cakes. Absolutely. These were an absolute favorite during the pandemic because a, a slice of savory cake with a glass of wine and a good salad is my idea of a perfect meal. And, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. The savory cakes in ghetto are really best described as a sandwich and a slice. Um, so think about, you know, you have two slices of bread and you fill it with cold cuts. But now imagine adding the ham and the cheese and maybe some olives and tomatoes, arugula, even some, you know, some chopped leeks uh, are delicious, some herbs. Uh, add them directly to the batter, a little bit of olive oil, and, and bake it. And you get this incredibly moist, savory loaf that is filled with all of your favorite things. And it's endlessly adaptable. I mean, anything you really want to have in a sandwich, you can put into a savory cake. My favorite is is actually a riff I make on an Italian caprese salad where I mix tomatoes and basil and mozzarella and olive oil right into the batter. And when you eat, when you eat it, you get that 
great kind of melted nugget of, of uh, mozzarella. You get the moistness of the olive oil. You get the, um, the juiciness of a tomato. You get those little bits of basil in it. It kind of reminds me, I think the reason I, I started making that one is it reminds me of that last moment when you're finishing a caprese salad where you want to just take your piece of bread and kind of rub it across the plate and get every last drop all in one. Um, savory cakes are really like that. Every every single bite has all of it. Um, again, it's really going back to, I think that French sense of practicality, of frugality. Um, you can use, you know, you could use little bits of old, you know, ends of cheese. You, If you have a little bit of ham, you can toss that in. You can toss in a little bit of vegetables from last night's dinner. They're very, very adaptable, but they also are great to travel with. So, you know, Unlike sandwiches, which will get soggy if they sit too long, um, these these savory cakes can go in a lunchbox at room temperature. They can go on a picnic. They can go in a beach tote. I tend to riff on them a little bit. So I, I love cooking with chorizo, which is obviously not particularly French, but works perfectly. So a, a chorizo savory cake with a glass of tequila is absolutely heavenly. And I like doing Mediterranean ones with, you know, with feta and olives, maybe even some sun-dried tomatoes. There's so much you can do, um, but it really is about, it is about a sandwich as a cake. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, you write in your book that in France, liqueurs and spirits are used in baking, often the way we think of vanilla here in the U.S., can you give me some examples from your book where you use booze as a flavoring ingredient? I use so much booze in this book, I'm afraid. Um, and there's always an option for people who don't who don't want to add alcohol. But it really comes from this idea that you know that if you bake a very simple cake and you know the and you know the recipe well, you can add a spoonful of cognac, armagnac, calvados, cassis, any of these incredible liquors, and suddenly you get an added layer of complexity and depth that truly elevates, you know, even the most basic of cakes into something adult and sophisticated. These aren't boozy cakes in the way that we think of kind of a um, certain kind of Southern rum soaked cakes, for example, which really every single bite does taste very, very much like rum. These are about really adding an undercurrent of flavor um, that's almost a little bit mysterious, like a haunting, just a slight haunting in the background of something. So again, I think it comes from both this this practical desire to kind of to reach for that ingredient that will really truly take something very basic and make it into something quite spectacular. Uh, two of my favorite recipes, though, in this book are actually chocolate cakes, and I usually. Um, usually like my chocolate to be completely chocolate, but there's a chocolate whiskey cake that is absolutely fantastic in here. And there's also a chocolate and red wine cake. And, you know, while chocolate and red wine are not an, always a great combination, in this case, you're actually making a beautiful kind of uh, sugar syrup with the red wine um, and boiling it down. And you get that, that just beautiful essence of wine. Well, the French do use vanilla, though, as well as all these liqueurs that you have in your in your book. But when you talk about vanilla in your book, you refer to it as a member of the orchestra and not a soloist. 
Explain what you mean by that. I would say in France, vanilla is really used in two different ways. One, it is used very intensely in a vanilla cake. You actually will find vanilla extract. You'll find vanilla bean. You might find even a little bit of vanilla paste all gathered together in there. But when it is added into cakes, it's used sparingly so that you, so that again, it's not masking whatever the other flavor is in the same way that sugar is used sparingly. So let's say you're making a raspberry cake. Maybe you will add vanilla, but it will just be part of the background. The raspberries will be the first thing that you are meant to taste. So it is always about all of the ingredients working to kind of to set the stage for whatever that primary flavor you want is. And maybe that's vanilla, but if it's not vanilla, then the vanilla will be really pushed into the background a little bit more. Hey, with so many choices of recipes in your book, if someone is looking to create a true homestyle French cake and they're clueless of how to start, which recipe, one recipe from your book, would you tell them to start on this journey with? The simplest one is the yogurt cake. And it is it is truly as simple as emptying the container of yogurt and using that container for the other ingredients and mixing it with a whisk and putting it into the oven. And it couldn't be simpler. And yet it is a lifelong recipe because you can add whatever spices you want to it. You can add whatever fruits you want, whatever liquor you want. You can add nuts to it. You can add herbs to it. You can add flowers to it. It's just, it's a genius recipe. That is the beginning. But the other one I actually also really like is a variation on a pound cake, it translates as four fourths and the eggs are, are actually weighed in the shell and then everything else is added um, at the same weight. The difference between that, that version of a pound cake and an American version of a pound cake is that the butter is melted and the butter is used to coat the flour and prevent the formation of gluten. And so you are able to then whisk the cake without worrying that you're going to overbeat and you will always get a very tender loaf. You know, except for the holiday cakes, the bouche de Noël, all of the recipes in this book are really simple, you know, and this really reflects the way the French bake, which is they they want something that they can whip up easily at night, um, sometimes last minute uh, with ingredients that they have on hand. And um, there's there's almost no skill needed for any of these cakes. There's a, a gâteau d'enfance, which is probably another one I would suggest. It's a recipe that's really about nostalgia that the that the French French kids love, but French grown-ups love because it's it's reminds you of childhood. And it's a very very basic cake, but when you make it, you actually you you butter the cake pan and you add a layer of, of raw sugar all around it. And so when you bake the cake, you do get this little bit of kind of a caramelized crust to it that's absolutely delicious and again it's like one tiny little simple step that that kind of transforms it and alexandra i want to end the interview with the last recipe in your book chocolate mousse now in the u.s we often think of a super rich whipped cream laden bowl of chocolate your recipe has no heavy cream how does a chocolate mousse work without cream yeah, uh, you know, and I do, I do love cream. I have to say, I, I always have heavy cream and creme fraiche in my fridge. Um, but you know, it does diffuse other flavors, and in a way that adding milk to coffee does. And the French do tend to like their chocolate to be really pure and intense and dark and unadulterated. And so, a French chocolate mousse will will rely on eggs for levity rather than whipped cream for that for that 
airiness and that and that incredible texture. Uh, it's a slightly longer process, but it also does last longer. So for for a cake, a cake that is made with a, you know is maybe filled with a chocolate mousse that is made with egg whipped eggs instead of whipped cream. Um, will be able to hold as well it will it will not lose its structure um but i think i think it's worth you know it's worth trying because it does it does provide a, a deep chocolate flavor without any any interference and i think that is you know most people when they want chocolate mousse they tend to really want that deep dark chocolate flavor without anything distracting it well your recipe sounds absolutely perfect and it will be the next chocolate mousse i have Alexandra Cropanzano, her new book is called Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. You can find her dessert recipes in her Wall Street Journal column, as well as on Food 52, The Daily Beast, Travel Leisure, and The New York Times Magazine. Alexandra, thank you for sharing some insight into your new book with us. My pleasure. There's nothing I love so much as French cakes. Maybe this is an opportunity to make more of them then, right? Well, I'm sure I can make you more French cakes. But you mm. want nice home-style French cakes? Mm. I have to make that yogurt cake. That seems so delicious and mm. so easy. That is all sounds like heaven. Please check out Crapanzano's new book, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. And by the way, let me just say before we get to our last segment, if you hear birds or bells ringing, <laughs> it's a gorgeous day in New England. And it's we're not at, your medication that's off. No, it's a gorgeous day in New England. We're actually recording with the with the doors and windows open. So there you go. I hear the bells, <laughs> the chimes in the garden ringing outside. Um, up next, our typical last segment. what's making us happy in food this week. And I'm going to start off and say, what's making me happy in food this week is skimming ice cream. It's, <laughs> it's my thing. I knew that would make Bruce laugh. Our things always make each other laugh. Uh, you know, I am a skimmer. There are skimmers and there are non-skimmers. If you don't know what I mean, then you're just not my people. <laughs> skimmers are the people who get the ice cream home from the store instantly open it up on the counter and skim the soft rim as it's softened in the car. And then, of course, you put it back in that freezer. But uh, skimming the rim of a carton of ice cream with a spoon as it comes out of a hot car on a summer day is one of the fine things in life. It must be the best thing that could possibly happen in food in the summer. So what's making you happy? I want to say what's making me unhappy in food this week is the lack of watermelon. I have said... What's making you unhappy? Unhappy is the lack of watermelon. You all know that watermelon is my favorite food. It has been on this What's Making Me Happy in Food this week many times because I've had many, many delicious watermelons. And for the last two weeks, for whatever reason, I go into every supermarket near where we live and there are no watermelons. And I don't know what's going on. Well, let's just say we live in rural New England. It's not yet really watermelon time here. I'm not looking for locals. I'm looking for like the trucked in watermelon. We get watermelons here around mid-August that are local, but it's not really time here, but apparently there is a dearth of the shipped-in ones. Okay, but what is making me happy, though, are some amazing cantaloupes that I did buy at Freund's Market. Shout out to Teresa Freund. She has some 
I don't know where they're coming from because it's not local melons here yet, no. but they're so much better than the supermarket. They may be coming from down Jersey Way that oh. way. My hunch is the cantaloupes are in oh, down there, but I actually don't know. Got two yesterday that just smell like heaven. And so while I can't get my watermelons, I am starting to get some good cantaloupes. So that's our podcast for this week. Our own culinary journeys, which we wanted to share with you. An interview with a cake maven, a food tip, and what's making us happy in food this week. How could it be any better? So subscribe and rate this podcast as we say. And join us next week for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.